Fantastic. Well, welcome. Great to have you here this morning. Beautiful day. And uh, wouldn't you love a life that was motivated by passion and beauty so that everything you wanted and everything you desired was going to be what was good for you, was going to be what was the correct and proper thing for the future, that uh, the only thing you really had to worry about in life was the pursuit of the raw passion that flowed from your heart. I want to quote to you from um, one of the great uh, authors and and intellectuals, if you will, of the Christian church of the last hundred years, C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, the author of Narnia Tales, amongst many others, says this. He said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered to us, like ignorant children, who want to go and make mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what it would be like to be offered a holiday by the sea. C.S. Lewis contends that we are far too easily pleased, that there is so much more to enjoy if we just open up our heart and our life to God. Now, if you have thought to yourself, you know, um, Man, it's hard trying to do the right thing. <laughs> if you ever thought to yourself, ah, oh, sometimes I just want to, you know, throw all this stuff off and do whatever I want, when I want, how I want, and blow the consequences and everybody else. Uh, I want you to listen up this morning because um, Isaiah seems to address this in a, uh, in a really interesting way where he says in the 58th chapter, uh, he's speaking on behalf of God. He says, for day after day, they seek me out. This is God speaking. They seem eager to know my ways. They seem eager. Uh, as if they were a nation that does what's right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. So these people, they, uh, they seek out God. The word seek there is a word that we would define as worship. So they're worshiping God. They're concerned for his commands. Uh, they ask for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. So you would define them as religious people. There would be a church. They would be worshiping God. They uh, would be tithing and serving or whatever it is that you would define as spiritual and as religious disciplines. In this particular uh, day and age, obviously, um, they they were involved in atonement and Passover and... uh, They were very moral and virtuous people. The kind of people that you'd probably want to marry your children. The kind of people that you'd probably want to have in your life group. The kind of people that you'd want to have as your neighbors. They're they're good people. But there's something missing. They said, and this is the people now. So God said, you know, you seem to be seeking after me. You seem to be doing the right thing. Uh, They say, this is the people in verse 3 of 58 of Isaiah. Uh, why have we fasted? So they've been fasting. Maybe it was a Daniel fast, I don't know. Maybe it was a social media fast or a television fast. (laughs) Well, maybe they just weren't eating anything but just drinking water, probably the case. Why have we fasted, they said, Uh, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you've not noticed? Yet on the day of our fasting, uh, do you as... Uh, you do as you please and you exploit all your workers. That's God's response to them. Uh, there's a tension here. Why have we fasted, they asked, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you've not noticed? 
Yet God says in the day of the fasting, you have not shown charity to other people. Um, you've been obsessed with your religious observances, you know, good and, and, and proper practices, decent and in order services and, and uh, you know, moral and ethical behaviors. And not that those things are wrong, of course, but, but, but there's a priority here that they have missed. And there seems to be a tension because God says back to them in, in, in verse 5 of the chapter, uh, is this the kind of fast that I've chosen? In other words, did I ask you to do this? <laughs> Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for borrowing, bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to me? There's a real tension here. I hope you can sort of perceive the tension between God and people who define themselves as followers of God. Uh, They're saying, where are you, God? Right. In this world of injustice, uh, in this world of, uh, of inequality and of disaster, where are you? When we've been doing all the things that are right. And I don't know whether you've ever asked that question. Maybe you have. I don't know. Maybe you're here this morning and you've often wondered, why isn't God coming through for me? Where is God when I need him? Or, or why, why God when I've, you know, I, I've done the right thing week in, week out? I, I, I've, I've you know, sacrificed, I've disciplined myself, I've, I, I've uh, read the Bible, I've prayed, I've done all the things that, that and yet God, where are you? They're disappointed. They have a, a real sense of entitlement that's not being uh, satisfied. And... Uh, God's not happy with them. <laughs> so here you have this, this tension, this standoff. God's not happy with them, and they're not happy with God. <laughs> Anyone been married in that situation? Uh, you know, he's not happy with her, she's not happy with him. Let's all be unhappy together. And uh, how many know that a lot of people think that's how life actually works? You know, I'm not happy with my boss, my boss is not happy with me. I'm not happy with my neighbor, my neighbor's not happy with me. Let's all be unhappy together. And uh, that's the situation that we have here. God clarifies it in verse 6. So I, I really need you to lean in. I need you to get this because this is really, really, really important. He says this. Is this not the kind of fasting I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, to break every chain or to break every yoke like that song we were just singing a minute ago to break every chain you see what God is fundamentally saying to these people and it's a message that is really uh, a a fundamental message of of all of what we would define as the Bible he's saying to them you know you seem really concerned about the way things happen in the context of religious observance you seem really concerned with ethical and moral principles. But you know what you've, you, 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 you have very little concern for? The, the last, the least, and the lost. Your priority is wrong. Your priority is all about, uh, you know, God, we're doing the right thing, and, and we're making sure we are, so God, you should be doing the right thing. And what you're not looking at are the most vulnerable people upon the planet. And God is saying to us here that your concern for the most vulnerable people on the planet is the same concern you have for me. Don't get your priorities wrong. 
This was startling to these people. These people were identified in the first verse as rebellious. God defines them as rebellious, and yet they were seeking God, yet they were doing all the religious observances. Because they were not identifying themselves with the same people whom God identifies himself with. God identifies himself with those at the bottom of the social status ladder, if you will. And we all have a ladder, let's be honest. We all have a ladder of people that we'd like to sort of speak to and those we're not so keen on talking, those we want to hang around, those we're not so keen on hanging around. And what God is saying to these people, and I guess there's a message that rings true to all of us, is that God says you identify with me as much as you identify with the vulnerable, the last, the least, and the lost. Proverbs 14, 20, uh, 31 says this, those who oppose the poor insult their maker, but those who help the poor honor him. He says in uh, Proverbs 19, 17, mercy to the needy is a loan to God. What you do for those who are vulnerable, you do to God, and it goes on and says, God pays back those loans in full. This is a radical concept that exists in no other nation on the earth that God identifies himself with the lost, with the least, and with the last. You all identify yourself by that which is closest to your heart. You know, you might be a, a father or you might be a mother. Uh, you might be a, a, a motor mechanic or a teacher or, or, or you might, uh, people say to you, what? well, I'm a pastor. I pastor Central Church. I do a whole lot of things. But that's close to my heart. So if people ask me to identify myself, that's how I identify myself. If you're to ask God, God, how do you identify yourself? Now, there are a lot of names for God. But God identifies himself in Psalm 68, verse 5, this way. Not as, well, I'm the creator of the universe, you know. <laughs> I'm the former of man. I, I formed mankind. Now, he, he defines himself like this. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. God, I set the lo God sets the lonely in families. He leads out the prisoners with singing, but the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. God identifies himself with the last, the least, and the lost. And you know, every other God in history has identified themselves with kings. Uh, Isaiah, um, it, God says to Isaiah in the first chapter, stop with all of your, uh, all of your religious practices uh, pursuing um, all kinds of, uh, of honor in terms of religion and start being just and looking after people who are vulnerable in your world. When in the Old Testament, a Syrian king uh, by the name of, uh, or I should say a general by the name of Naaman, said to his king, who he had leprosy, he said, I hear there's a, a prophet in Israel who can heal me. And his king said, well, go to, his, go to the Israeli king and, and see this prophet and get healed. And he gave him all this money and all this baggage and, uh, and, and gifts. And, and he went to the Israeli king and said, thought, well, okay, you know, if the prophet, uh, someone here can heal leprosy, the king would keep him close because God identifies himself with power. God identifies himself with kings. 
God identifies himself with the Pope. God identifies himself with generals. God's identi- God identifies himself with authority and with power. So Naaman goes to the king of Israel only to find that the prophet wasn't there. He was off in the desert somewhere. God was saying, you, I'm, you can't buy my, my, my favor. God's not in bed with power. In a male-dominated society, he identified himself with widows. In, in a community that was all about lineage and, and blood and tribe, he identifies himself with the aliens, with the racial outsider. Now you say to me, well, was this, is this, this just an Old Testament thing? No, no, no. If you come over to the New Testament, Jesus is speaking to some of the religious leaders. And he chides them. He says, you've been tithing well on mint and cumin and you, you've been keeping you know, your religious practices up to scratch, which is not bad. But he said, you have forsaken the weightier matters. And what are the weightier matters, Jesus? We've been doing all of the religious observance and the things that you've asked us to do. And he says, the, relig- the, the, the weightier matters are putting yourself out for vulnerable for the last, for the least, and for the lost. In Matthew 25, he's talking about an end time judgment. And he says, he basically says, everybody's broken into two groups, the sheep and the goats. And uh, he says, uh, what defines the sheep and what defines the goats? He says, are those who have, who have clothed me when I was naked, those who have fed me when I was hungry, those who reached out to me when nobody was there to help. He goes on and says in chapter 25 of Matthew verse 40, I, I, uh, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters, you did for me. So it's, it's, it's an Old Testament imperative, but it's a New Testament value. This whole idea that as much as you do what you do for the least, for the last, and for the lost, You do this directly for God. God identifies himself with those at the bottom of the social ladder. A sister passage to Isaiah 58 is Zechariah 7 that says this. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. It's the same idea. This word justice that he uses here, uh, administer true justice. Uh, it's a Hebrew word, mishpot. It has three ideas that, that it brings with it that I want to communicate to you quickly. The first idea is one of racial equality. In other words, um, I will concern myself with those who are not part of my tribe. Uh, I know when, when our tribe are, you know, are threatened, when they're in danger, we do whatever we can to assist. We do whatever we can naturally enough because we have an obligation within our tribe. But, but what he's saying here, this whole concept of justice goes beyond just our tribe, beyond just the people who are like us, beyond our family, uh, you know, beyond our friends. The concept of justice here is a racial equality or the the idea is you have the same concern for people who are in foreign countries far away as you have for the people who live in your own 
world. That's justice. It's not charity, folks. It's not something I do because I'm a good person. It's something we do because the obligation, it's something we do because we have to do it. Um, Job said, if I did not share what I had with those who had nothing, it would be a sin. So, so the, the, the concept here is not, well, you know, I gave a few bucks, uh, I gave a few bucks or I, I handed something over, what a good boy or what a good girl am I? It's not about I feel better about myself. It's actually intrinsic in who we are. Racial equality, special concern for the vulnerable. Um, you know, sometimes you, you have to reach out to a group of people and you have to give them more than other groups because they're coming from so far back. Uh, and you, you compensate. I, I want to suggest to you this morning that um, the most vulnerable people on the planet are those who are furthest from the gospel. Uh, if you want to look back through history, you see how the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ lifts a community out of poverty. It lifts a community uh, out of injustice. But uh, also, naturally enough, it also affords people the opportunity to hear the gospel and receive salvation, forgiveness of sin, and so on and so forth. The psalmist said you need to speak out or speak up for those who cannot speak up for themselves. And that's about, that's about giving to extra to people who are more vulnerable than yourself. That goes beyond just trying to treat everybody the same, but recognizing not everyone's coming from the same start. There are people who are starting way back there. And for those people who are starting way back there, we've got to stretch, we've got to reach, we've got to do a little bit more for just to bring them up to scratch. It brings with it the concept of racial equality Special concern for the vulnerable. And the last thought is it brings with it generosity. Uh, verse 6 of that uh, same passage talks about sharing. It's not just about giving a few bob here and a few bob there. It's not just about, well, I can afford this or I can afford that. It's understanding really how, how and what you have from God's perspective. And, and, and see, God views your wealth. God views your, uh, your possessions, your money differently than you view it. And let me explain. You see, uh, if I view it as mine, then if I give a little bit of it away, then, hey, I'm a generous kind of guy. I'm, you know, I'm a pretty good dude, right? I, I, I'm cool. Uh, I, I gave some charity. But God doesn't view it like that. God doesn't view it that, hey, you've worked hard, you studied hard, you're a clever boy, you know, you're a smart girl, you've done really well, you know, you, you've been able to climb the social ladder, you've been able to advance yourself, you know, in a, in a financial or in a, in a, uh, a substance way. Uh, the way God views it is this. Everything you have is His grace to you. <laughs> uh, nothing you have is yours. Now, now you say, but I've worked hard. Yeah, yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, you've done okay with it. God has put you in a position where he's blessed you and you've done okay. But you did not choose the nation that you'd be born in. You did not choose the year of your birth. You did not choose to be born in what is arguably the most wealthy and prosperous nation in the history of the planet, folks. We are living in a time that, that, that generations before could not even have dreamed of. Now you might be sitting here thinking, oh, but you don't understand. I can't pay this bill. I can't buy that bill. I've got these pressures. I've got this and that and the other thing. I, I understand that. I appreciate that. 
But if you take a step back and you have a, a, a broad look at the blessing that we live in, you, you, you need to understand, folks, that you had no choice in this whatsoever. You could have been born in the 1500s in Tibet, right? And you would have had to walk five miles a day just to get fresh water. <laughs> you, you know, like you would have lived a subsistence lifestyle where, where you would have had a, a, a uh, your chances of living past 55 would have been very minimal. You most probably would have been dead by the time you were 50. That was the, the rates whereby people died by. But not here today. This room is filled with people over 50. And all of us over 50 said... Most other times in human history, we'd be dead. <laughs> That's a fact. <laughs> so we should congregate and just congratulate ourselves at the back later. <laughs> all of us over 50s who, as I said, if we lived in another place and time, would all be dead. But we're not dead. I'm feeling quite alive. Thank you very much. <laughs> I think I've got a few years left in me yet. <laughs> I might even make 60. <laughs> <laughs> see so so you know what i'm saying like you got to take a step back and realize man i am so incredibly blessed to be bought to be alive in australia in the 21st century oh my goodness you have won the lotto folks how many know how many know right now as you and i speak they are looking for you know um athletes of a elite nature that have run away uh, just for the privilege of living in this country that you take for granted. They trained for years to be able to perform at an elite level, but when the opportunity came to perform at elite level or potentially live in Australia, blow the com games. <laughs> I'm living in Australia. <laughs> and right now they're hiding. And you're walking the streets with your head up, knowing full well that no one can cast you out or put you in jail because you belong here. You have no idea how blessed you are. Folks, folks, just listen to me. Listen to me. There are people who are a thousand times less likely to have what you have and to understand the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ purely by when and where they are born. It's time for us to stop thinking, well, it's mine. You know, I've worked hard. I, come on, come on. God has played, you, you have an unfair advantage over millions and billions of other people who have been born on planet Earth. We need to start to recognize that and accept that as it is. So I hope you're feeling guilty. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> feeling so guilty thanks didn't you start hang on a minute didn't he start off by saying imagine living a life where all was, was beauty and passion <laughs> he said that didn't he and then all he did is heap guilt on us <laughs> jeez eh? I've been ripped off right I appreciate that <laughs> and, uh, and I've, I'm doing that on purpose I'm bringing you to a place so, so bear with me don't, don't just cut off and say well I'm not here to feel guilty I'm not here to feel you know persecuted by you mate uh uh, because it actually uh, comes to an interesting conclusion, this chapter. So you've you got to stay with me here because uh, 
the, the truth is that any religion, or for that matter, forget religious, right? Any social moral force that attempts to get people to do, to do the right thing out of shame, guilt, duty, obligation, never works. And I'll tell you why. It always ends in what we've already read here, in self-entitlement. Whenever you act out of a sense of obligation, well, I should do that. Whenever you act out of a sense of guilt, whenever you act out of a, a sense of, of moral ought, you know the downside of that is? You inevitably feel a sense of entitlement. And you always do the minimum just to get by. I just do the minimum to get by. Self-interest, moral duty, obligation can never change the human heart. But listen to what Isaiah says a little bit later in the chapter. This is getting a little bit more now into linking to what I, I mentioned earlier in verse 13. He says, keep the Sabbath day holy. Don't pursue your own interests on that day, but enjoy the Sabbath and speak of it with delight as the Lord's holy day. In other words, don't just do spiritual observance, right? Don't just do the right thing. Don't just get into the drudgery of trying to have to keep up with, with all of the obligations that my religion place upon me. The Sabbath is a gift to you. Receive it with joy. Not out of guilt, not out of obligation, but with passion and with excitement. He, he, he says this, then the Lord will be your delight. Aha, now we're getting the words that are passion. Now we're getting into the words of beauty. Now we're getting into the, the, the words of desire. That the Lord will be your delight and I will give you great honor and satisfy you with the inheritance that I promised to your ancestor Jacob. I, the Lord, have spoken. Folks, there are two approaches to, uh, to justice. And when I talk about justice, I, I, I want to do so within the context of what I explained earlier. Right? It's, a, it's about the impact that we have, not just on our society, but the impact we have on the globe. What we are doing to alleviate poverty and spread the message of the Lord Jesus Christ in this planet. There are two approaches. One is, if I do the right thing, then maybe good things will happen to me. And a call to selfishness, a call to selflessness based on selfishness just doesn't seem quite right does it um, then there's a, a, a different approach that says I have a vision of who God is I have a vision of what God's about and I just get excited about identifying myself with God I, I just get thrilled about being about what God's about there's something exciting about that there's something incredible about that that, that it's a privilege to be a part of you, you either see it as one or the other a woman by the name of Elaine Scarry, Scarry has written a book called On Beauty and Being Just interesting book She's a PhD, she, she's a, a lecturer in, in, in some of the great universities of the world. She's been roundly criticized for this book, and I'll, and I'll tell you why. The, 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 the title of the book is On Beauty and Being Just, and she says this, you'll never, just, you'll, you'll, you'll never be just simply because you have to. You can only be just when you have a vision of beauty that decenters the self, Beauty lifts you out of yourself and allows you to move forward into being just or move forward into justice. And she uses the illustration 
of a college student who's listening to classical music. Say he's listening to Beethoven. And he's listening to Beethoven simply because it's part of the course. So he listens to Beethoven, you know, because he wants to get marks. He wants to get a good mark. Um, so he gets his degree, or she gets a degree, so they can get a good job, so they can earn good money. So they're listening to Beethoven purely as a means to an end. It's not an end in itself, it's a means, right? I listen to Beethoven, so that will give me the information I need to get the mark that I need, to get the, 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 the qualification I need, to get the career that I need, to get the, the life that I want, or the job that I want, or the money, whatever. Uh, and so the Beethoven is purely a means to an end. She goes on and argues, and imagine down the track a little bit, the student actually falls in love with classical music and loves Beethoven. Now, rather than listening to Beethoven to get something, they now take their money, lots of their good money, and they freely part with it so that they can get Beethoven in their life. And Beethoven is no longer a means to an end. Beethoven is now the end in itself. I listen to classical music not to get a mark, not to get a job, not to get a career. I listen to classical music because I love classical music. I listen to Beethoven because I love Beethoven. That's what she's talking about when she's arguing her case on the premise of, of beauty and being just. Now, I don't know about classical music. I don't know about Beethoven. and I don't know about beauty in that sense because I think you could there's a lot of arguments against that the Nazis were right into Beethoven and so on and so forth so there's a lot of arguments against that but but I do understand something about the beauty of this the beauty that that Paul seemed to understand when he said this he said what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth or the surpassing beauty of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom sake I've lost it all, but I consider it garbage, dung, waste. Human uh, waste is that word garbage there, just by the way. So, and Paul, who had a lot of accolades, Paul was an intelligent man. He had a lot of, he had a, a, a lot of status in his society. He lost all of that, but he said, I don't care. It doesn't, I, have, I haven't lost the thing because I've gained the beauty of something else. I, I don't know about this woman's arguing about classical music, but I can see how it applies to what Paul is arguing for here or what, what Paul, I should say, is experiencing here. Uh, I mentioned before how the Old Testament is filled with references to God identifying himself with the last, the least, and the lost. But in the New Testament, God becomes one of them. Born in a, an animal feed trough in a barn. The last few days of his life, he rides into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey. He has a, a meal in a borrowed room. He goes through a kangaroo court uh, where, where, where there was lies and deceit and there was no justice at all. If, if you've ever experienced injustice, Oppression. My goodness, you have someone you, you can identify with in Jesus Christ. See, Christianity doesn't just say God died for us. Jesus suffered for us. 
Christianity, like no other religion on the planet, says our God suffered with us. John Stott says this. He said, I could never myself believe in a God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of pain, he contends, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? How could you say, God, where are you in my pain? If God had not come into your pain to share your pain with you. The cross is a beauty. The cross, we see injustice, victimization, Jesus Christ saying, I deserve to be vindicated, I deserve justice, but he took condemnation and injustice so that you and I might receive pardon. Not just suffering for us, but suffering with us. This is a beauty, folks. This is something to behold. This is something we have to get our minds around. See, there are two things that will keep you from being generous to the poor. There are two things that will keep us from partnering with with organizations and with people who are involved in in taking the message of the Jesus of Jesus Christ to the lost to the least and to the last peoples of the world there are two things that will stop you one is a sense of superiority I've worked hard for that that's mine I'm not giving it away I've worked hard to be where I am to achieve what I've achieved to have uh, um, gained what I've gained And I'm not going to give it away, not for anybody. Here's the fact. When you understand the grace that's experienced through salvation, how can anybody feel superior? It takes that that spirit, takes that idea, throws it out the window. And of course, the other says, I need my goods. I need my status. I need what I have. Again, when you are captivated by the full grace of, the beauty of the cross. And you see how much God has given to you. How could you ever doubt the provision? How could you ever doubt the supply? How could you ever hang on to what you have out of fear of insufficiency when you have a God who's given you more than enough? Do you see the beauty of this grace? See, I I don't just receive my just desserts. I don't just receive what I deserve. And when I understand that, it it both humbles me and I recognize how great my God is, but it affirms me and I don't have to fear. It humbles me and I recognize, you know, this is not by my hand. This is not by the sweat of my brow. This is not by my intelligence. It's by his grace. It humbles me, but it affirms me. It also says, hey, God's not gonna let you down. God's not gonna let you stumble. God's not gonna let you go without. God is on your side. It humbles me on the one hand and it affirms me on the other. And when I take those two big ideas, being humbled and being affirmed, I am set free. I don't have to hang on to what I have out of fear. I might not ever see it again. Imagine living a life motivated by beauty, and desire where it's not about obligation 
It's not about what you have to do, what you should do. Oh man, you're telling me I've got to identify myself with the, the least, the last, and the lost? You're telling me that God, you know, if I don't identify myself with those who are, who are racial outsiders, those who are on the, 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 uh, uh, the backside, if you will, of the fortunes of this world, that somehow I've made God my enemy? Thanks for that. You know, whilst that is, there's truth in there, I, I, I want you to try to see it from a, a different perspective, from a different point of view. I want you to try to see it through the beauty and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ manifest for us upon the cross. We join with God. We see ourselves as mighty in a sense. We are the mighty ones of God. You are a mighty one of God. God has commissioned you. He has anointed you. God has... uh, uh, given you what it takes you you have been empowered so that you can take what you have not just for yourself but so that you can take what you have and partner with his spirit partner with his desire partner with his plan and see the world changed you can make the world a better place because God through his spirit is in us and when we recognize that and we let that go. We let that, we, we let that loose within us, that beauty of the cross. Then it's not a matter of obligation. It's not a matter of duty. It becomes a matter of passion. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, I thank you today for the incredible grace that you've poured out upon us all. Lord, and as we contemplate and as we consider the blessing. As we consider the the mercy and the grace that we carry around in such huge proportions. God, loosen the hardened hearts. Set free the fearful souls. We might become the mighty ones. We might become those world-changing ones that you call us to be, I pray in Jesus' name.